This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and today I am honored or like whatever is the next level beyond honored, to welcome Rachel Talalay to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Rachel Talalay is a film and television director and a producer. That's how her Wikipedia entry opens. And while accurate, it fails to capture just how punk rock Rachel is, how entertaining her work is, and the myriad of emotions that work conjures up in people. Rachel's work spans many genres, from horror films like Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, to the seminal comic book film, Tank Girl. I'm putting respect on that name. Seminal comic book film, Tank Girl. To the dramatic film, On the Farm, about the women who are preyed upon by serial killer Robert Picton on Vancouver's downtown east side. To my daughter's favorite film, A Babysitter's Guide to Monster Hunting, about a babysitter who embarks on a dangerous mission to save a child who has been abducted by monsters. Rachel has also directed episodes of some of the most entertaining television series of the 21st century, including Sherlock, Riverdale, The Flash, Supergirl, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and seven episodes of Doctor Who, including Heaven Sent, one of the most beautiful and critically acclaimed episodes in the series history. Okay, look, I'm gonna be upfront with my bias here. Rachel is one of my favorite directors. She's fearless and inventive and creative and a fierce advocate for multiple causes. So I'm probably going to fangirl a bit, like a lot. Today, I wanna get to know the remarkable artist behind some of our favorite works of art and give her the origin story treatment befitting any one of the shows that she's directed. Rachel Talalay. Hi, welcome to the Hi. podcast. Wow, <laughs> I've been really, really, really lucky. I mean, when I go through, when you go through that, I think, yeah, lucky. Wow, what an amazing uh, things that I've been invited to work on. I'm gonna push back a little bit or question you a little bit right away because apparently my fangirling will, will take the form of pushing back do you think that it's luck though you know because when we talk about luck it's almost like it takes away from what we bring to bring to it as well right so you know is it all luck or is it no it's not it, it's not all luck of course but um i was fortunate in the early days that mm. i um was involved in some really, really remarkable films. Uh, and some of that was luck. Um, and then some of it is now is allowed to be uh, things that you develop and some of it's actually allowed to be selectivity. Mm. Um, so, and one hopes that it is also one's passion and talent. But 
there, if the starting place hadn't had a certain degree of luck, mm. then I may not have ended up where I am. Okay. And we will, we will go to that starting place uh, in a moment. I, I, I want to talk about this idea of punk rock though, which I think is my idea. Like I, because I, I haven't heard you describe yourself as punk rock, um, but I have, I look at your work. I even look at that poster that you designed. Okay, so this is, people will have to go to the links for this episode and uh, click on a link that'll be like Rachel Talalay, um Acceptance Speech 2016 Women in Film Spotlight Awards, where uh, Rachel and I both won awards that night. She was Woman of the Year that night, which was amazing to be there for this incredible speech. One of the things, though, in, that we are given instead of a trophy is a gorgeous uh, photo shoot uh, with Wendy D photography. And then um, they ask us to put, like, give a sentence, to, like a sentence that they're going to put on the photo. Rachel did not choose a sentence. <laughs> Rachel had like hundreds of words. It was it was very it was reminiscent of of some Sherlock stuff. It was just you know it was it was and I was like that. I was just remember being like that is so punk rock of her to do you know and just like that's like but I feel like that applies. See, I'm fangirling already, everybody. But that applies to so much of your work, you know, of, of being punk rock. Are you punk rock? Am I just like putting this label on you, or do you see yourself as? So as now I describe myself as post-punk feminist warrior um mm, so mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it, 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 it i don't know if being punk rock at 60 doesn't seem like a little um strange maybe i remember seeing a woman in her for when i was in my late teens 20s and in my most punk phase when really during punk rock during punk um, rock. seeing a woman in her 40s wearing bondage trousers and thinking Oh, that is so weird. Like laughing at her <laughs> oh, as, one, as one did in those days. And now when you're thinking, in your 20s, right? Yeah, and now thinking <laughs> I am that woman, I would happily yeah. wear bondage trousers, but then the world has evolved and it's okay as well. But yeah. I, yes, I had a absolute passion for punk um, and, and for rebellion. And so when you say like, I did that with my image instead of a portrait of me, mm -hmm. I did this sort of verbal, um, I mean, I'm in there but I'm covered with some of my favorite quotes and some feminist empowerment and some just general empowerment. Yeah. Um, I, did, I, I say I'm not very good at following the rules, which is true and untrue. Mm. And, um, but what I am saying is that I don't want to be limited by the rules. I think right. the way that we are artists is by pushing past the rules and you have to follow the rules to a certain degree, but you have to understand the rules and then you have to understand what you can break and how you can push the boundaries. And that's what I want to do. I always want to be pushing the boundaries. So even when I've chosen to be inside a box and do, for instance, an, a pretty standard episode of, for instance, a superhero show, yeah. I'm always trying to put something, I'm not trying to change the rules and say, this is my version and the flash will flash away in a completely different way. <laughs> yeah. I'm saying, how do I make this a little bit more fun, a little bit more out there, a little bit more visual? Um, how do I make this a, a lovely experience for the actors? Because that's really, and the crew, mm -hmm. which is really important. But also, can I just make this nicer in mm. some way? So I just came off an episode, which was classic horror. Um, and uh, an episode of The Flash. Yeah, an episode of The Flash, which was sort ah. of its own little weird standalone with uh, Danny Nicolette. 
um, not a one-hander, not, not yeah. a heaven set, but a lot of um, sort of Danny Nicolette in a mind palace. And um, Eric, the showrunner, Wallace, the showrunner said, you know, I really just want this to be a small horror film. And boy, did we embrace like all the best of 80s horror. And wow. it was so much fun. So having the opportunity and, and the crew said to me, boy, we haven't had filmmaking like this in so long. We're just getting through our episodes, but I was able to, I was allowed to film make. Yeah. So, and we were doing every tr horror trope of the eighties and loving it. Oh, I so, can't wait. Um, I, I love a good we, jump scare. So I'm, I'm excited yeah. to see that that on the flash. I will point out that um, Rachel is not, to my knowledge, wearing bondage pants because she's sitting down, but she is wearing a green sweater with a robot on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, conventional is not, uh, I sometimes felt sorry for my kids that the <laughs> parent who showed up was the weirdest parent in the school. Um, it's a gift, it's a gift, okay, okay. Um, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that whenever I do an origin story, I ask, I say, like, let's go back in time. What's your time tra travel vehicle of choice? I'm not going to ask you that today. I am. I am going to ask you, which TARDIS are we getting into? Who's or, TARDIS? I mean, for me, uh, a second home. There are certain things that are your happy places. Um, and Peter Capaldi's TARDIS what is absolutely a happy place and you will see and if anybody looks at my artwork and and my photographs how much time I spent photographing within that place because and I did macro photograph and I did uh, I love um, a the good fish. super wide yeah. fisheye um, because there was something aesthetically pleasing and I'm a kind of a math head and um, there's certain feng shui or um, just the need for certain order that makes me feel good. It's not really Asperger's-y, yeah. um, but maybe it is. <laughs> but right. there's certain degrees of, and there's something in the aesthetic of that space that absolutely uh, worked for me and made me love, and it, part of loving filming in there, of course, was, the, was Doctor Who and the wonderful material I was given. Mm. But it had, it was so photographable. Yeah. And as I went on through seven episodes, it, the challenge was, how do I make it different? How do I make it? How do I push the boundaries? But there was always something to do with it. There was always. Mm. So we are definitely in. Uh, okay. I figured. I figured. Okay. So I want to, I want to go back in time to. I mean, I don't, I don't know why I'm even pretending to think too long about it. I have a 10 year old. I love 10. 10 is like, is like you're, it's, you're pure, like you, you're in your feelings. You have a very definitive sense of what you like, what you don't like. You figured it all out, but there's still that kind of, I'm just thinking about the conversation I had with my daughter this morning. Like, yeah, I just, I, she's like the coolest little human. And I wish I could go back and be 10 again, you know, because of how she experiences the world. So I, I want to know Rachel at 10. So where are we going and and who is what kind of kid is going to open the door when we get there? <laughs> so it, that is such a great question because I don't think I've ever been asked it. And Rachel at ten <clears throat> is so different from anything that 
Rachel from 15 onward. Um, I was a very uh, anxious, extremely anxious um, child uh, and really tyrannized by panic attacks from about the age of eight or nine um, until early adulthood. I was a very good student because I wanted to please everyone. Right. But um, there wasn't any real opportunity to break out. And I didn't understand that opportunity to break out. So mm-hmm. I was well behaved, except when it came to lunch. And that was because my anxiety, a lot of my anxieties were around food. Mm-hmm. And they we had there were rules at the school that you had to eat everything they gave you. And that made me so unspeakably anxious that I was tyrannized. And so I feel like everything was built on the fact that, and you, you've chosen the year where the school actually chose, said, if you do not eat by the rules, we will not feed you lunch. So you've conveniently, ah. you've conveniently chosen the year that I've never spoken to anybody oh. about, but I feel like it's Years so that you've important. never spoken. Wow. But, so I had a choice. Either I ate by the rules, which is ate whatever they gave me, or I ha- was not allowed to eat. So I did not. So for the entire year, I didn't eat anything at school. And I think that probably defines how stubborn I was and determined I was. Was um, that you now, being def- defiant and punk rock before you were actually so, punk rock? And it's appalling. It's a story that no one can believe. How did your parents let that happen when they were paying for your lunch? How did the uh, school, like it's, it's abusive. Yeah, children need calories to get through the day. Yeah, completely. And yet I did the entire year, didn't eat any lunch, um, wasn't allowed snacks, you know, just your carton of milk. And that's what I did because that saved me from my anxieties. So um, maybe that's the most character building part of my entire childhood. Uh, And then the real breakthrough moment was when I was 15 and we went to my, my dad's a university professor and a very uh, significant cancer researcher. Mm-hmm. And we, he went to do a sabbatical in England for the year. And that was the breakout year in terms of um, just freedom and opportunities and seeing everything outside the box. And that was the, the year of change um, that made a, such a huge, when I was 15, 16. Yeah, that that was my breakthrough year. First of all, thank you for for taking us into that formative time. Uh, second of all, um, I really appreciate you talking about uh, your your childhood panic attacks and childhood anxiety, which is literally something that we are dealing with right now uh, with with our my daughter and uh, is. I mean, is rampant from what I've heard from the counselor at her school right now. They were living in a really anxious age, you know, um, that like there are some kids who have a predisposition to it and then we've piled it on. We piled onto it because of, of COVID and because of, you know, just a lot of the pressures of this, this age. Um, another time travel question then. Uh, there's going to be a lot of those. I, I think that's going to happen, you know, but if like, well, like what were, what were some of the things that you learned uh, about um, childhood anxiety, uh, you know, in retrospect that you wish that either you had known or maybe that your parents had known um, or, or that you've used as a parent, like maybe this is just me reaching out to you across no, the, I, <laughs> across time. 
time and space for some advice, right? Because it's a lot of us are dealing with it. And, you know, as little as we talk about our own mental health as adults, like, you know, I don't, there's not that many, you know, I don't see a lot of conversations about mental health in children, especially from parents, you know, who might want to maintain a certain image about, oh, you know, I've got it all figured out. My kids are fine. Everybody acts like their kids are fine and it's... <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can say a couple of things. There weren't even the words panic attacks. They didn't even, it didn't even exist. Um, or even talking about anxiety at which, and I was at one point when I was um, getting help in my thirties, my shrink said, your childhood panic attacks were as severe as they get. I mean, on a scale of one to 10, they were 11. Um, and I was oh my like, God, Rachel. yeah. And, and so the positive part of this is that I ended up at university. I ended up going to Yale. I ended up fighting my way through it. Um, and the most positive thing I can say to anyone is I'm a poster child for recovery. So if you can be as messed up as I was and have as much, and, and anxiety is biological. Mm. Um, so people who say, oh, get, people who don't have it don't understand um, it. And don't understand that panic attacks, you can't stop them. So you can learn trick, but if panic attacks going to come on, it's going to come on. So for people who don't know, they feel, they can feel like heart attacks. Like they, they, people end up in, in hospital. Yeah. People uh, end up in, in, you know, so I I wasn't going to turn this into a mental health story, but um, it's part of it. (laughs) It's part of it. one of the things to be encouraged, and I think the pandemic is going to be a fascinating uh, research project for um, the humanity, yeah. uh, but particularly for what has it done to our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't imagine having survived it during my panic attack time. Uh, but particularly with kids, it you can re- that is the time when you can reprogram and not allow it to become a permanent. Um, so I'm very, as the poster child for uh, somebody who could barely travel, could barely do anything. Um, and now look at my, me, um, I can only say that, that there, there is hope. There is hope. I find that very, I find you as the poster child, very reassuring, uh, to be honest. And I find, I mean, we all have our different ways of, 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 and are different, but for me, working is a very, very, very positive thing. So filling my brain with all these things that challenge and, and all the creativity and all those things helps me hugely. Yeah. Um, so I recommend be, you know, filling your brain with the things that you're most passionate about, yeah. which seems to be a recommendation for everything in life. I mean, it's it's a it is a it's a good way to just live your life as well, right? Because you know you can't do harm with that. Um, when you were either ten or fifteen, or throughout your childhood and through your punk rock years, uh, what role did did screen entertainment play in your life? And I'm talking TV and I'm talking film. You know, considering the prominence that it has in your life now, um, you know, what what role did it play? And and could you foresee your, did you foresee yourself having a career in the entertainment industry? I decided as a teenager that I was passionate about film. Mm. So up until 13 or 14, maybe 
I didn't really think about anything besides how did I get through the day without having a panic attack. Yeah. Um, and then one of the discoveries I had was film and I was absolutely in love with it. So, and I think it's really important that, uh, I, and it was all film. All film. Um, I mean, I had, you know, there, there are certain genres I like better. I was very uh, romantic. Um, so I loved really. And, and, Yes. So I loved um, uh, the dance. I loved Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I love musicals. Um, I did notice some Bugsby Berkeley in Tank Girl. Tank Girl. Yes. That comes from my passion for those old, old Hollywood musicals. I loved the, and I guess maybe I, 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 probably obviously it was pure escapism Mm. that Hollywood seemed like this amazing, perfect place that you fantasized about. I always talk about the way we were as, you know, here's Barbara Streisand, Mm. the uh, neurotic Jewish woman getting Robert Redford. And that's the great fantasy of that one had growing up was, Mm. well, you know, maybe you can get the perfect uh, blonde man if (laughs) Thing that reality is is not quite so simple, but I I did have that fantasy life as a growing teenager. Um, I find that so interesting too, because I in my mind also you are so associated with a specific well with with horror and with like sci-fi and superheroes and like a certain kind of thing, and so I would not have thought (laughs) the way we were. Um, or Bugs v. Berkeley musicals, but I mean, I watched those growing up too, so. So that was one side of it, and that's why there's the Bugs v. Berkeley number in Tango. But the other side of it was, it wasn't the sci-fi, it was the rebellion. So I just recently Mm. did the films that made us, um, or the films that inspired us, or whatever it's called, and was talking a lot about uh, the rebellious films that uh, influenced everything that so starting with the loneliness of the long distance runner um, mm. and this idea that you could fight authority in by your own defiance and that kind mm. of, you know, and that led and that led to um, the if passion for Malcolm McDowell, which led to Clockwork Orange. Um, and that sort of feeds much more into where Tank Girl came from, which is really my internal passion piece. Uh, but so that's the other side of the um, coin of what fascinated me, which was once I started, once I got past the romantic and into my own punk and punk rock was huge in understanding that we need to rebel, we need to fight. Um, and women, the importance of what women can do and the complete lack of understanding of how difficult it was for women and the amount that we accepted this is just the way it is versus the amount that we fought. And um, so, yeah, so there were those films as well, the, 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 the rebellion films. Yeah. Um, My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you studied math in, in university. Um, How else would you deal with your panic attacks? I mean, my daughter plays, plays Minecraft. So, and Animal Crossing, and uh, so I get that, putting things in order and stuff, but what was your, I mean, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm asking this question too with, with the idea, like I hear my immigrant dad in my head being like, you go to university and you're, you're going to pursue your career, you know, that's based on your degree. Um, mm-hmm. Technically didn't do that, but, <laughs> you know, so, but I'm, I'm just wondering, like, you know, you go, well, 
when you went to university, uh, what was your intention for what you wanted to do after? Especially now you've already said that there was a passion, a passion for film that was there as well. So I got into Yale and knew I had to go to Yale. Um, I came from a very, very academic family. So can I just be- say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but your, your dad was the reason that, that we all eat broccoli as an ex antioxidant, right? Like yes. his, the research that he did into that is one of the, like, it's is one of the reasons. Yeah. It's seminal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. His and his, his, we can get into that, but his yeah. disease prevention and cancer prevention work is absolutely seminal. And he's national Academy of sciences. And you've got this uh, big figure, amazing guy who, <laughs> and he wants all four of his kids to go into science it, and he's pressuring all four of us into going to sciences. And he's so desperate that he's buying my kid sister a microscope for her 10th birthday. And she really is like, really? So all that pressure backfired and I was good at math and I did enjoy math and he was pushing that. Um, but when I got to Yale, I was like, well, I'm, and, and I knew it was the right that I should do that. I knew I should get that education. I don't know why I was smart enough at 18 to understand that, but that was definitely my choice. Yeah. And uh, so when I looked around, I, I, there was no way I was going to turn it into a film school. Um, and when I looked at film studies versus film production, uh, when you're at a university like that, you're really getting into semiotics. Mm. And that was and just... I'm, I'm pre- prepping um, a debate that I'm not allowed quite yet to publicize, but a big, uh, a high profile debate. Okay. And so I've been, um, and it has to do with screen and media. And so I've been going into semiotics and boy, I mean, I, I can now process all that and I'm, I can find it fascinating but it really is philosophy and not film. <laughs> right. So at that part, when, you know, at that part of your life, when you're trying to prepare for, you know, the decades ahead of your working life, maybe not the time to be loading up on philosophy or, you know, maybe you could do both. You know, I, got, I just, I wasn't smart enough to be able to get into that kind of academic. I mean, I didn't consider myself trained enough or smart enough to be able to do that. Yeah. So math was what I liked and what I'd been doing. And, um, so I did an applied math major, which meant that what's relevant about it is that it was early days of computers. So mm. I did some, a, a lot of basic programming. You're just contained multitudes, really. I mean, I, lo- I love <laughs> learning all this stuff. I mean, and I, I learned to get back in the TARDIS and how do we get from, from computer programming to, you know, to, to the film, to a film set, you know, and, and that, that, that journey, like what, what did you, what did you want from a career then once you had stepped on a career in film, you know, once you stepped foot on a, on a film set? So I didn't really know. I just knew that once I left Yale that I wanted to learn about film and see if this was something that I wanted to do. Hmm. And it was very frustrating for my parents because here I was with, I, I spoke 12 computer languages and I could get a job and you know, I was recruited by the CIA. I was recruited by IBM because I was recruited, I mean, recruited by the CIA, meaning they come to Yale generally and you know talk to as many kids who are relevant, but I had math, computers, and Russian. So 
I was oh, like, Oh, and this was during the cold war. Yeah. Whoa. So I was like, and I was so not interested. So completely not interested. Can you imagine though, what would have happened? Like, does you ever sit there and be like, what would have happened to my life if I had like, you know, gone to work for the CIA? I mean, you could have, who or knows? IBM, or um, it probably- I'm sorry, I'm stuck on the CIA because of film and television and what I see happens with the CIA in movies. I have no idea what it's like in real life, but wow. Yeah, so that was, those were, but I was stubborn. We're going back to the stubborn part. Okay. And I was just interested in film. And so and I didn't know what I really wanted to do because I didn't have any experience in it. I didn't have any, um, the, it was really hard to film make when then, I mean, it, it was really expensive. Right. And so even making short films are super expensive. So you needed actual film. I mean, that's what yeah. I think some people don't appreciate. My daughter has filmed thousands of hours of herself and making movies with her stuffed animals in her room. And I'm like, if if we had to go back in time, you know, to like to buy film or or to buy tapes, like it would be we we wouldn't we wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, back so it's then. a digital is wonderful. It's a wonderful time. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so I and being mathematical, that threw me into more toward the producing yeah. um, and, and quite quickly into uh, ironically into do, doing accounting because I was on these low budget films and they were like, we don't have an accountant. Well, you did math. You can. I mean, I knew zero about accounting. Yeah. Uh, so but my what Yale gave me was that I said yes to anything that was offered me. Hmm. Uh, yeah, sure, I can be the accountant and then go learn how to do it. Was so that, that just to be in film? Was it just to be working in film then yeah. at that point? It was like, I'll just do anything as long as I can be in the film industry. Yeah, so and learn. In low budget film, um, learn any, be in there, learn anything, uh, have these experiences. And it was very social. Um, it was very, it's very magical being on a set. Hmm. So it wasn't, I have all my ideas and I have to direct. It was like, I just want to work in this. I want to learn how it works. I want to, um, and the luck part was that the first job I did, which is I volunteered to work on polyester with John Waters was a new line film and uh, Bob Shea financed it. And so I met new line and that led right. to ultimately to me becoming the accountant on um, alone in the dark, which then led to me doing nightmare on Elm street and all roads in my career lead back to nightmare on Elm street where mm -hmm. I learned, uh, I was so lucky to work on the film that turned out to be so successful. Yeah. And I mean, is in everybody's vocabulary. Yeah. And I was so complicated uh, that I had to learn and, uh, every type of effect and stunt. And so as a woman, I was suddenly given these opportunities to do this incredibly complicated work hmm. that other women were kept out of having those opportunities. Yeah. So that basis, working on the first six Nightmare films, was the whole groundwork for my career. I'm interested in you. You mentioned that you're given, you were you were taking opportunities and given opportunities that that uh, women you know had not been given or taken to that point. I mean, we, I talked about this with Ann Wheeler when I was speaking with her a few weeks ago about her book. Um, can you can you describe what it was like, uh, what it felt like, um, and to be that woman? Like, were you often were you ever like the only woman on set? You know, which seems like like 
incredible and mind-boggling now to think about um but you know or what like was it really uh like very few few women that were on set and was it a hostile environment like can you tell me a bit more about that i feel like in the early 80s when i worked on the super low budget uh it was much more inclusive um Hmm. and a lot of the exclusivity started in the mid to late 90s um Hmm. or was happening in the echelons way above me Right. But I feel like on set there was I didn't really encounter any feeling of uh, that um, bias until later on in my career. So I was Hmm. like because they were just so anxious to find bodies who could do any of the jobs. Um, And my saying yes was, I mean, the best example is when I went to do when I went to work on uh, when they came to me to do Nightmare on Elm Street. and they, I had been the accountant on the previous one. And I said, uh, so they said, we'd be the accountant. And I said, no, I'm doing more production. I'll be the accountant, but I also want to do something else. Can I be the assistant production manager? And they then made me do all the locations, right. um, <clears throat> which doesn't work well with accounting, but I did it anyway. Because, <laughs> And then when they came back to me for part two, they said, well, same job. And I said, no, I want a production manager manage. So they gave me the production manager job. And yeah. when they came back for part three, I said, no, I want to produce. And they said, okay. So yeah. then I produced three and four and I became, uh, and, and they gave me a job at New Line as a development executive so that mm-hmm. they, and production executive so that they could put me on whatever films they wanted to put me on. Right. Um, and then ultimately I came and said, I want to direct part six. So I, it all came from me saying, move me up, move me up, move me up. And it wasn't until I left New Line that I started to hit the hard knocks of what it was like to be out there in the real world with, uh, and I'm not saying that New Line was perfect, but that world was that there was much more inclusivity in that low budget world for, at least for me uh, during the eighties than any place else I've seen in Hollywood until now when things are changing. So now you see, and I, I do want, I, well, let's talk about it now. Now you see this as a moment of change. Um, that's a statement, not a question. I'll find a question. What is it about this moment that indicates <laughs> you know, that this is a moment of change? Well, I think that all the, ch- the change started in 2014. And the change started when the people think it was Me Too that's created all this uh, divert change, uh, all these changes. Yeah. And Me Too has done a huge amount. But it was before that, and it was uh, women uh, in the Directors Guild of America um, saying, how many more years do we have to have the percentage of women directing as 4%? Um, 4%. So they went to the, so long story short, they went to the ACLU and the ACLU and and the ACLU started by looking for the smoking gun (laughs) and nobody has the smoking gun. You can't prove that you weren't hired. Um, mm. Because you're a woman, because they can give a thousand other reasons, and there's lots of uh, really great euphemistic reasons. Well, you have more experience. Yes, more. Of course, you have more experience. <laughs> we don't get any experience. Exactly. <laughs> we oh, we laugh it. because it's it's sad. It's we said it's preposterous. It's there's a funny. generation of women directors who had no opportunities from 1996 until 2014. Um, but the ACLU, after interviewing more and more women, realized that this was a this was a civil rights problem mm-hmm. um, and, and and an equity problem, 
And they went to the U.S. government and said, you need to get involved in this. And the U.S. government, the, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, came back to the, and wrote letters to the studios and said, this is a really, really serious systemic problem. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what happened after that, except that even when that just started to happen, suddenly it went from, uh, oh, we can have one diverse person per 23 episode, per 22 episodes. And I used to have oh, yeah. a t-shirt that said token on it. Mm. And people would be like, I love New York City subway. And I'm like, no, I'm- Oh my God. <laughs> oh no. Well, in, the, in, the same, in the same breath saying, wow, it's, you know, you're the first woman we've had um, on episode 19. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, did that feel like you were brought into a hostile environment then? You know, oh. because like, because if you are bringing a, a, the token person into, into a, an environment that isn't inclusive, isn't diverse, like, isn't that just bringing somebody into a hostile environment? Completely. Yeah. And I am still understanding and coming to terms with how hostile it was. And I don't think it was until Doctor Who, which was my recovery period, that I understood how much I'd have to, I'd had to subvert any part of myself to walk into that situation and try and understand what do they want? Who do they want me to be? And so I would spend my whole time trying to go do the best possible job, but also be completely under the radar so that there were no problems so that I didn't mess it up for all other women um, for eternity. Yeah, and, like what Amanda Tapping says, like you have to be perfect as yeah. coming in as the woman director, as a director who's a woman, you have to be perfect or else they won't hire another woman. And they again. want, and every show yeah. wants different, th every situation is different and every show wants different things. Yeah. It's a huge relief now to be able to go on set and think, I know I, I can just generally be myself. Yeah. Um, and I don't have to put feel like I need to put my entire resume on the call sheet to justify yeah. my being there. Uh, it was, but, but the PTSD and the damage of, cause I kept, I did keep working during that time, yeah, did, but yeah. I was that one woman. And so often uh, my reps would come back and say, Oh, they didn't like you. They said you, they said you, and it would be like, you know, it would be almost as equivalent of you didn't smile enough. You weren't relaxed enough. You, it was never, your work was bad. Oh, they really liked the episode, but it was always about you. Ugh. And yeah, ugh is right. Yeah. And so, and it was all I knew for in my television period. Yeah. And then I would, for me, I would go to the UK every so often because <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to do that and work on wonderful material and have this great experience. Yeah. And then I would come back into the American world and it was awful. Yeah. Um, I mean, some experiences worse than others, but if you came out relatively unscathed, uh, it was a miracle. And recent, maybe in the last five, six years, men have said, oh, I thought all those women, you guys just didn't want to do the job anymore. Um, that's why they're stopped. You all dropped off to have kids and stuff like that, as opposed to you had no opportunities. And they ah! I remember, oh man, I get quite angry because uh, I'll stand next to a guy and I'll say, 
you know how great it is on set when you walk on set and you go, yeah, I don't know what to do with this scene. And this direct quote, I don't know what to do with the scene. What do you guys think? Isn't it wonderful when you get that collaboration from the crew and the, and I turned to this guy and I said, I would never have worked again if I, if I behaved like that. If I showed any of those vulnerabilities, they would have said, you don't know what you're doing. You know, we're never hiring again. She didn't have a plan. She didn't know what she was doing. She didn't. um, And you can just walk on. And I mean, it's, you can walk on and say, I didn't prepare the scene and uh, uh, it's okay. And he was like, what do you mean? Of course. You know, that don't you, how can you be prepared for every scene? Of course you want the collaboration. And I said, well, yeah, you want the collaboration. I have to get it in a much, much different way that starts with my being in command. And then there's a negativity. Oh, you weren't flexible enough. Mm -hmm. Oh, you were, your plan was too rigid, which is something that didn't usually happen to me because I was very good at, at pivoting. So you would come in with a plan, but I always wanted to listen to what other people had to suggest because you benefit from that. You do, but it also sounds incredibly exhausting. Oh, there's no, and you could never win. Yeah. And then you would turn around and look at, and and people would tell you, um, oh, we had a useless director before, you know, male director before you, and they helped him with this, 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 and this, and you've come in with all this and they're being horrible to you. What can I do? You know, what, what, what can I do except do the best possible job and hope for the best, but it is changing and it's changing hugely now uh, because there is so much direction toward diversity now. Mm. I mean, in the society, like it's a societal cultural shift. Yes. It's a cultural shift, but it's also a shift within the business and the importance within the business. So now I turn around and there are so many diverse directors and so many women directors on the shows that I work on. Yeah. And it's a miracle. And now the key is how do I su- use all my experience to support them so that they can feel confident and get the support that they need from the crew because they will never have the support that a male director had. Yeah. Um, and it's just inherent and it's shocking. I remember yeah. saying to Amanda Tapping, who I just absolutely adore, but the, how fortunate she was that she started on her own show. Right. A lot of these actors uh, uh, get these great opportunities, uh, and, and Berlanti, for instance, is very supportive of his actors. Yeah. But because you're on your own show, you know the crew inside out, mm-hmm. you know the rules of engagement of the show inside out, but you're also important to so important to the show that they're not going to treat you like the dirt that they would like to treat you like if you were just a uh, just a uh i put that in quotes yeah that was a, a quote unquote just a yeah, yeah. quote unquote just uh, <laughs> director of a, a woman director coming in or a diverse director coming in and she said yes the shock of the first time she went out into the real world and it wasn't her show was yeah. And I said, yeah, that's what it's like. Um, So, but I feel like there's all these women finally getting opportunities. So it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, And I I, I did notice that you talked about Doctor Who as part of your healing period. So I want to put a 
pin in that for a second um, because I do want to I want to talk about Tank Girl. Um, I I I remember watching that in you know when I was a teenager, so it hit me at the right time, and um, and just and just being in love and just like I, I just I'd never seen anything like that and um, and also and feeling very joyful uh, and then I, I watched it last night and it it still felt joyful although I was like oh my god it's about like right now like everything is going on right now it's like tank girl is next week um, but I also remember you know the the pushback and the and the people who didn't didn't seem to get it so I, I want to start with the joy though before we talk about people who don't like joy, I guess. Um, what, what was it joyful to film? And like, what kind of film did you set out to make with Tank Girl? So it was completely joyful to film. I uh, knew it, it, it I was, knew it. It was <laughs> hard as hell. We were in the desert in, in Stone and it was 110 and I was pregnant and it was- Oh my God, I had no idea all that other stuff. Filthy and it was, but we knew that we were doing something um, completely different. And there was not a crew member who wasn't excited about the opportunity to do something so out there. They knew that this was potentially a once in a lifetime uh, opportunity to be, to push this hard. So, um, and, and to be this out, just out there, like if, and, and if you want to know why there's a musical number in it, then you're not the right audience for it. If you want to know how she changes her hairdo when there's no water, then you're not the right. If you can't just take the joy of how out there it is. And yet it has really, really important themes. It's something actually that's uh, recently been brought up uh, um, as well in Freddie's Dead, which has all kinds of baggage with it, Mm. also has important themes about uh, child molestation. And Tank Girl is absolutely the ultimate Me Too um, yeah. movie, which makes me really understand why the studio was so scared of it. Mm. But Tank Girl's a classic situation where we were greenlit by one studio head, and the new studio head who came in totally didn't get it. So everything changed. But they didn't really, uh, he was so new, and we were off filming. So they kind of let me do what I wanted to do during the filming. And it wasn't until post-production that he came in and hated the film, hated everything about it, hated every single feminist message. Um, I recently found out a huge amount of stuff about his personal life and what an incredible sexist he was, old school sexist he was. And it made a lot more sense that this film appalled him. so what do you do in post? You end up with uh, him wanting to, and, and there's a lot of things that were changed in post entirely because of his taste. Hmm. So, and other people's tastes within the, the group. Yeah. Um, and it was not supported by them. But also Laurie Petty said, that when it said to me something that I didn't realize until recently, which uh, is that they went out to get it the R rating that it had because it's not really an R rated film, especially now with the system being, I mean, um, there's not a lot in it, but they were so appalled by the female forward sexuality that they pushed to get the R rating, which really hurt the the, uh, box office. Like, 
okay, screw your own movie. I mean, okay, you're that scared of this movie. I totally didn't understand any of that. I just thought we're making this really fun. I'm, I'm breaking the, I'm, you know, completely breaking the glass ceiling. I'm the one. And this is going to, every, you know, one thing does not lead to another. And you yeah. should never think that you <laughs> are going to make a difference. But you did, Boy, though. I mean, it's, I, I mean, you still, you still have the, I mean, the film is still, it's, it exists and it is fun and it is, it is so, I mean, just the, the joy of, of the Rebecca character and, you know, and like just the way that she responds to pain and that she inflicts pain and it's, and it's just bonkers. And I, I just, I, I mean, you have, like, you have, like, how do you, how do you look at that experience then and look at the film now you know, that it has, even with all of its baggage, like, do you appreciate it for what it is? Is there love in your heart for it? Or like, is it, is, has it been sullied for you by, by all of, you know, by misogyny and the misogyny that came out, you know? Well, the fact that it was, did, did, was a box office disaster and then kept, put me in movie jail. Um, and people were, in Hollywood for the first 10 years afterwards, were so, the fact that it was a problematic film and 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 i mean thank god for the internet which has saved so many elements of my life um while destroying other destroying others but, yeah. but there are many great things about the internet and it was uh going it was when the alamo draft house in in colorado invited me to a screening yeah. And said, you have no idea how important this film is. And um, what are you talking about? And it was when, so it wasn't again until this time period. It's really recently, period. right? A right, long right. time afterwards, yeah. I realized and starting to go to Comic Cons and starting to go to fan uh, cons and people would come up and a third of the things they brought me were Tank Girl things. And they would say, this changed my life. And then suddenly there were screenings and this changed my life. And people were saying how much it changed their life. And then I was, and, oh, you know, I watched it with my mom. She couldn't wait to show it to me. And I really then understood that everything that I was trying to do, it had found its, its world. Uh, but there was a long period of time and I couldn't watch it. Um, I couldn't even watch it when it screened at the Alamo Draft House. I didn't watch it until the DGC screened it here. Yeah. And I had some friends here. And it was just like friends. two years ago or a year and a half ago, right? Like that was <laughs> a couple of years. Couple of years. <laughs> wow. And then I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's so much good stuff in here. And there's so much important me too. And no wonder I scared them so to death. But it's yeah. all in fun. And it's it's totally out there. And it's so, yes, I have a great love for it. And uh, a lot of the pain has finally. <laughs> Good. I'm so glad. And I'll say I cannot wait to show it to my daughter one day. Not quite yet. She's very much into the babysitter's guide to monster hunting. So that's kind of her. That's cool. That's that's her thing right now. Yeah, you don't have to rush her into. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to rush girl. her into tank girl. Yeah. It will, it, she'll find that day where babysitter seems young and show me something cooler, mom. Yeah. Oh, it's I love babysitters. It's it's still it, it is very cool. Um, okay, we put a pin in Doctor Who. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Doctor. I'm gonna take the pin out. Um, 
you talked about that it was that it was it fell in your in your healing period. What did what did your I mean, and you directed the seven episodes and I know that you've told me previously that you read you were reading the script as you were flying to uh, to the UK. So you got to meet you got to meet Peter's doctor before, you know, like a lot of the rest of us did, which is phenomenal. But when we spoke before, I didn't know it was falling during your healing period. You know, so what what was it about doc? Like, what did Doctor Who? What did the doctor do for you, Rachel? So I had wanted to work, uh, one of the really nice projects I worked on during the difficult, during the the dark years was Wind in the Willows, which uh, was uh, with Matt Lucas and for the Doctor Who fans, Matt Lucas and Mark Gatiss for the Sherlock fans and Doctor Who fans um, and Bob Hoskins because we love him. Um, and was written by Lee Hall and shot in Romania and uh, is not a well, particularly well-known piece of my work, but one that I'm really, really proud of. And we were, I was brought to the UK to do it and then to Romania. And at that point, I stood, when that was clo- early in the reboot, it was just the beginning of the tenant period. Um, and so started watching with the kids and it was like, oh my God, this is absolutely brilliant. This is, how are they making the show? I remember and had love for for old Doctor Who, but when they were rebooting it, I didn't understand what Russell T. Davis was going to do. And I hadn't seen the first season, series, correction, series, first series. Series, series nine, yeah. So uh, the I ninth hadn't, doctor, the ninth doctor. Yeah. Hadn't seen the, yeah, I hadn't seen Chris Eccleston, Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, I seen, yeah. And I was all over, sorry, telling, declining phone calls. Um, I was all over the, uh, how amazing it was. And the kids were amazed and scared and, and we were having the real Doctor Who experience. And I said to m- my agent, I want to work on this. And it was seven years before I finally got asked to work on it. Wow. So that was a journey of, uh, of, and, and of evolution and of change and to be able to get that opportunity. And part of it, a large part of it, I'm convinced is just that if I had been in the UK, I would have been invited to work on it, but yeah. bringing somebody from Vancouver was a big deal. Yeah. But when they Can finally I just say called- I'm so happy that it was you and Peter because you were also <laughs> both like you got to be new together, you know, on and and then I know that you have a wonderful friendship and also like on the show a wonderful collaboration. Like I feel like the stars were yeah. I mean obviously I would have loved to see what you did with David Tennant and with with Matt Smith, but I I I I'm so grateful too that you know you and Peter got to have that that we all got to bear witness to the work that you created together. And again, so good fortune, they asked me to do the finales and it was Stephen Moffat's scripts and they were brilliant. And I got to meet Michelle, get Michelle Gomez started on the series. And what a, mas- what a master mistress, Missy she is. Yeah. And uh, so, at, and I was scared because I thought, well, okay, I've been trying so hard to get on the show. It's one of the few things that I've really worked on trying to get onto. What if I don't fit? What if I screw it up? This isn't the this isn't right, and I can't make this work. But uh, clearly, that was not the case. And mm-hmm. what I tried to tell them when I interviewed several times was, 
all this experience I have in effects and, and, and all this love I have for the show, I just want to bring all those things to the table to help you to make the best Doctor Who episodes I can make. Yeah. And every script you receive, because they're all different, is the new opportunity to bring something new to the table. And I was terrified for all of for my both my episodes in series eight. And so being asked back <laughs> yeah. was it was really being asked back to do was the moment when and they said, come back and do any episode you want to do. Um, you can do the first or you can do the, the last and timing because it's not like an American show. I mean, you're talking about five, six month commitment. Yeah. Uh, that's a big deal when you want to be with your family. Yeah. Um, so timing worked out to be uh, heaven sent and, and hell bent. And that, mm. I mean, again, incredibly good fortune because getting to do in particular heaven sent was the magical, epi- ep- that elusive unicorn episode. Yeah. And and we've had a, in Vancouver. I mean, we've had the opportunity to see. I, I remember that. I mean, you you. I don't know if you screened excerpts from it um, at the Fan City Theater, but you were in conversation with Amanda, or if you screened the entire episode and then you know you went through you know the your director's notes and and these drawings. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what that drawing means, but that's that's Rachel saying, you know, it's going to be like this. It's going. No one can see. I'm making a circle motion, um, you know. But uh, when Heaven Sent arrived, though, in your email inbox or, or however it arrived, like we're like, how much? Tell, let's talk about that journey from script to to screen. Like, how much of what we saw on screen was in the script? How much were you able to bring to it? Like, how much was was it? Because I can. I don't, I would love to read the script for that and to, to be like, how, what, how did that get, you know, just to see how it all, I don't, I'm not a math head, but I do like to understand how things come together, especially math. Well, it's a, yeah, it's, a, the Heaven Sense particularly, comp, was a particularly complicated script because when yeah. Stephen handed it to me, he said, I don't know if this is makeable. So. That's I, I very don't inspiring. <laughs> so, I don't know if you can you do go, this, Rachel. but good luck. <laughs> and of course, my response is great. You know, the more just bring it, the more complicated, the more just keep challenging me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, first of all, uh, the co- collaboration with Stephen Moffat is phenomenal. And sort of the the dream to be able to have a showrunner who you really can can collaborate with. And that was part of the healing was how much he was supportive and uh of everything that and how much Peter uh, Capaldi and I got along so well that you have this grouping and tremendous production support um, to make the best possible episodes. So your dream is that you want everybody, when, when you interview for new shows, everybody said, this is one's going to be different. We're all going to be together and in the same thing. And we're all going to be pushing for the same. And you're like, yes, everybody thinks that, but in truth, by the time the network gets involved and, 50 producers are fighting with each other and the scripts, it, it's, it's a rare situation where all those things are symbiotic. Yeah. And, and yes, it's true. We all want that. We all want every show to be that. And it is best when there is that uh, combination and that love, but. Yeah. It's like alchemy. In, I mean, yeah, that's, like that's alchemy. Like the, and the so I feel yeah. like I had that alchemy. Um, 
with that group. And that was the best luck ever. Uh, so, and the most fun and, um, but yes, incredibly challenging. So I'm just going to uh, move this to a, to a pitch, which is I've just, I'm just in the process or just started a YouTube channel. And I don't know how long this might be just what I'm doing while I'm in quarantine for 10 minutes, but <laughs> okay. uh, I don't know how long I can sustain this, Yeah. but I just put the first, uh, piece out in the second the first segment out which is i call how I, it's just called how i film this and the first segment is a clip from Freddy's dead the final nightmare where i explain how we did our tricks to uh so it's a trick shot it's not clear that it's a trick shot yeah um and we ex i explained how we do it and so it's a real peek behind the filmmaking curtain then oh we'll link to this look for look for links to Ra rachel's youtube channel in our footnotes so part Two is uh, is probably because I'm doing two on Doctor Who at the same time. I don't have permission to do these. I'm just going to say that here, so they could get taken down at any point. Oh um, come on, let her do it. Come on, BBC. <laughs> part two is one is the shot of the doc, the Cyberman carrying the Doctor, mm -hmm. and the one I'm pro hoping to publish first is. Um, uh, basically a look behind how we designed the castle for the clockwork castle for heaven sent oh! so exactly what you're talking about <laughs> which is what did the script say and what did we do okay and sometimes that's because we didn't have any money and sometimes it's because this went wrong and sometimes it's pure creativity so um, wow you require a lot of um it's like you have to be like rigid and flexible the most important thing is to get everybody to tell you their ideas take all the best of them yeah. give them credit but still get your take the credit as well that's yeah. the magic the it's magic of the gold dust is being able to inspire people to give because you know what your ideas are yeah um but when people start coming into you and saying how about this and this and this and this not always good ideas but that encouragement they might that might spark something else or yeah. it, they might just have genius solutions so yeah. that's the brilliant collaboration of the of filmmaking it's like being um well and, and directing like it feels like it's being a like a conductor or um, uh, like an NMAD scientist. I call um, it yeah. <laughs> chief, you... crea chief creative officer. Chief creative officer. Because yeah. you're taking in all the creativity and you're, because directing sounds harsh. And yeah. acting, acting sounds fake and directing sounds harsh. So hmm. I'd like to see it as more the chief creative officer. I like that, but I'm going to push back. <laughs> Too. Or actually, push, push back. Well, because I also I feel like there's a saying chief creative officer. It sounds kind of corporate a little bit, and I feel like there's also there's there's magic. Like there's there oh, yeah. for me like art is magic. Like I stand in in awe and and I because you know like it's like the you know an Amadeus difference between a Salieri and a Mozart, right? Like there's there's a magic there. So you're also a magician. Can I just say you're you're chief creative officer of magic yes yeah <laughs> and uh, and wizard and and oh yeah i guess that's the you're dumbledore basically you're dumbledore you're, you're the principal of hogwarts i'll take that 
I'll definitely take that. I'm Dumbledore. That's a good moment, place to be today. That's a good place to be. Um, okay, so I we are going to wrap up soon because I know you have your busy person. You got to get back to your day. Um, and I do want to end by talking about your causes. Uh, but I, I want to ask um, uh, a couple of questions about like directing, and I mean we were just talking about directing in, in more general terms and how you're Dumbledore something that happened to your exclusive on the podcast. Um, but, you know, what other, what other skills are required to be an effective chief creative officer of magic, an effective director? I think that a lot of it is good listening. It's, uh, and, and people skills in the way that, like, for instance, the actual directing of actors is all about understanding what an actor needs. So all of these rules don't, you know, you must use action for you, verbs. You may not be passive or you have to use passive or you can't say do this. And all these rules have bear no relation to people. Mm. And all actors are different. They have different levels of insecurity. Your job is to create a safe space for them so they can do their best work and make them feel the most supportive. And that's different for every person. Some yeah. people want lots of direction. Some people want not very much direction. Um, I had hand signals with Michelle Gomez because if she had, one of the first things we did together was a Stephen Moffat two-page monologue, that you know, Shakespearean monologue. Yeah. And <clears throat> listen to it. Uh, I'm blown away, but I have some notes. And she just looks at me and goes, and it means like, it, it, I just pointed my finger. Um, just yeah. <laughs> like, don't, you know, don't get in my head yet. Let me get you a version of it that I'm happy with. And then we can play with it. And immediately adjusting like every single little beat that I was concerned about. And then I go, oh, wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> mind blowing that you could do it and understand every beat you missed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... Peter Capaldi will just use, and then then Gomez is like, well, okay, can we have fun with it now? You know, now we got that that one. Now yeah. can we have fun with it? Peter loved variation. Mm. So um, whereas other actors, if they think you're happy with it, and then they that's just what they're going to give you. How do you make it simple and done, and and don't stay out of their heads? Um, <laughs> so your job is to listen well and figure out same with the crew same with mm. the creative people same with the producers um listen well and figure out how to get the best out of everybody yeah so basically dumbledore um, is, <laughs> but is there such a thing as a as an undirectable actor like like how do you deal with actors who for instance won't won't pick up what you're putting down. Won't 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 listen. Aren't giving you, you know, even meeting your basic. Like, is it even meeting your basic vision or notes or what you need from that scene in order to move to the next one? There's two types of those. There's there's the ones who just won't do it because they're just. This is what I'm giving you. Uh, um, there's that. And there's the ones who uh, are so inexperienced that they're too scared to, um, that, that they find it difficult to take direction. Mm. With the ones who won't do it then, or can't do it for whatever reason, you've just hit the limit of their acting ability. 
then there is an undirectable actor. I mean, mm -hmm. there is a director, who, an actor who either will just say, this is what you're getting. And then I go to the producers and go, I couldn't, you know, I, I don't have a magic wand. And for the insecure, less experienced actor who's not doing a good job, there are then tricks of thing, giving them other things to do to distract them from getting inside their head and thinking about acting so much that, um, uh, yeah, they're ruining uh, um, themselves. So yeah. there are tricks. Um, sometimes it's as simple as giving them a bag of potato chips. In other cases, it's taking away the bag of potato chips. Or <laughs> I will now be watching for bags of potato chips in all Rachel Talloway projects. <laughs> so, so yeah, so but yes, there are, and there are actors who just don't, you know, and there are actors who don't like you and don't want to. And what do you do? I mean, it, there are situations, yes, where you're like, that's all I could get. Yeah. So yeah. then I'm like, okay, well, how do I cut around this? Mm. That's all I'm thinking is, okay, this is not good. What else can I do to, I'm going to just end up cutting around it. Yeah. So um, fixing it so, in post is a real thing. Yes. <laughs> it's a real thing that happens. <laughs> but um, most, most actors want to be there and want to act and their yeah. fear is that you're going to give them direction they don't understand or they can't do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel so, so honored and my mind is completely blown to spend this time with you today, Rachel. Um, I can't like, I can't let you go yet. I can't. <laughs> so much I, fun. <laughs> I want to talk with you about, about your charity work. Um, I am the proud owner of original Rachel Talalay artwork. Uh, funds are, uh, have been uh, donated to the ACLU. Um, what what are some what are the charities that you're supporting now, and what are what are some of the things you're doing to to raise funds for charity? Well, my the ACLU, as explained earlier in the podcast, if you've tolerated listening to me this long, is is incredibly incredibly <laughs> important yeah. to me. Um, I think what they've done for diversity and filmmaking. I mean the the fundraising for the ACLU is a no-brainer because I believe that my life is better uh, because of the ACLU, that yeah. the work that they did has actively changed my uh, life, yeah. my income, my possibilities. So yeah. I'm so grateful and I will do so much for them. And that's not, that's just their film business stuff. I mean, the, their other work is absolutely reuniting uh, children at the border. Mm. Um I mean, the civil rights issues are so important and so yeah. uh, and and tremendous what they do. So um, yes, I will. Um, but right now, I'm fundraising actually for on a very intensive fundraising for uh, a named professorship for my parents. Um, so a uh, at for at Johns Hopkins University, we want the Paul. We are fundraising for the Paul and. Pamela Talalay uh, professorship of, in the pharmacology department. And it's a tough fundraise because it's uh, basic science, not uh, patient-oriented science. Right. And because the things that my father did in terms of, so it's all to do with disease prevention. It's all to do with cancer prevention. It's all to do with um, AIDS prevention. It's They now have 
uh, one of his labs is uh, now being used obviously for COVID research. Right. And the head, new head of the pharmacology department wants to add um, a professorship with my father's outside the box view of the importance of disease science and disease prevention. Wow. So um, they've given us 50% of the funding and we're trying to raise the other 50%. And I'll probably do, if I can work it out with the university, university fundraising is tremendously complicated, but I can work it out. I'll probably do another uh, charity auction for that because um, honoring my parents is obviously a very important uh, part of my life. And after that, no doubt, I will go back to my um, ACLU work. Yeah. Okay. And we will have links to anything and everything that Rachel has spoken about today in the footnotes for this episode. We didn't um, talk about the full as well and, and indigenous women. I probably should talk about that as well, because after we made on the farm, we started a foundation for uh, giving out that gives out educational funding for family members of missing women. So that's really important as well. Yeah. Um, and we've been giving, we've started giving out our first monies for that. Um, oh, fantastic. So that wow. we'll be able to start publicizing that as soon as some of the uh, details. Yeah, yeah, some of the details are, some of, uh, oh my God. You think giving money, you think giving yeah. out money would be, would be easier. <laughs> <laughs> you would you would hope so Rachel you will come back right you'll come back to do the podcast and we'll talk I again would, and Sabrina I will do whatever you ask me to do wow you know that how is much amazing I just love <laughs> you and all you're doing for uh for all of us so thank, thank you. you thank you thank me thank you the, today has been an absolute gift and there's still so much more I mean yes you're right we didn't talk about on the farm we didn't talk about you know the uh, multitude of things that I want to talk to you about. So please come back. Maybe I'll do a really cool panel. I'll have like you and Amanda and Ann Wheeler and we'll just, and, uh, and, you know, and I don't know, Shannon Coley and, and some other cool, you know, people doing some work. Luvia, uh, Jem. Jem. Yes. Luvia. Yes. Jem. These are all amazing humans. Um, and then we'll, we'll, uh, you know, continue the discussion. And we can beat, it, beat on each other. You so. can. And I'll just sit there just smiling like, like a fool. Cause I'm so happy. Okay. Now, Rachel, I know you yeah. said that your, your, uh, social media has its, has its evils and it's, and also it's good side. Where can our, our listeners find you and follow you and celebrate you and send you so much tank girl love, a <laughs> punk rock love on the social medias. So I'm on Twitter at at I'm on Instagram at Rachel Tavillet or at R um, yeah. And uh, my YouTube channel will be, is called How I Filmed This, Rachel Tavillet. And so new, um, just the earliest experimentation. And as I said, I think because I don't have permission to do it any second, I'll get an angry notice from Warner Brothers or BBC or whomever. Okay, or, so watch it while you can. Go to the <laughs> channel as soon as this episode is, is published and watch it while you can. <laughs> but I think it's fun to talk about the history of, and, and if you're interested in filmmaking at all, it's fun to take a look at what we had to do when we were working on film. I love it. Um, so yeah, those are my, those are my uh, uh, main, main channels. All right. And thank you, you can find you can find links to all of those in the footnotes. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you to our listeners. Please 
like, subscribe, leave us a review if you're so inclined. They help us find even more listeners. Then we get to keep the conversation going. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenScene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Brani Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Furminger Dudley, for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! <laughs> Yay! Yay! I just said cut to Rachel Talley. That's amazing. That's great. I'm going to bed now. This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.